I want to ask you to open your Bibles with me this morning back to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 4, as we conclude the chapter today in a series that we've been going over concerning perspectives on suffering. And uh, we've, we've looked over, beginning from back in, in uh, verse number 12, we've seen that suffering is a cause for joy. Not something you hear every day, but it is a truth that we're given in Scripture, that the suffering that comes into our life, that God uses it to work in our lives in such a way that we can rejoice in our suffering. And that we can rejoice especially at the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ when He comes back and finds that we have been faithful through suffering. Peter goes on to encourage us and to give us the perspective that suffering is a path for glory. That is, through suffering, God is glorified in us. That we take an active role in glorifying God in the suffering that comes our way. We looked at that in verses 14 through 16. This morning, I want to begin, or or rather finish, this idea of perspectives on suffering and recognizing in verses 17 through 19 that this final perspective that we're giving is that suffering is a reminder to us of judgment. That is, suffering is a reminder of God's judgment. You see, God hates sin. And I think sometimes we, take, we make sin maybe a little bit, we take it a little bit too lightly. But we don't understand all of the implications of what that means for God to hate sin or all the significances of God's judgment. But what we can be sure of is that when suffering is involved, reminder that God is holy and that God is just and that He will judge sin. I want to ask you to stand with me this morning in reverence to the reading of God's holy and inspired Word as we read it to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we ask, Lord, that you would enable us to understand and apply your word. We pray, Lord, that you would guide us through these truths and that you would help us to grow in them, that we might be sanctified in your truth. Guide us now according to your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. As, we've, as you read through these verses, you see that this is a passage full of references to God's judgment. And as I've already stated, we know, or should know rather, that God hates sin and therefore will judge sin. We see in this passage God's judgment on the household of God. That's God's judgment on believers. We also see God's judgment on unbelievers and the necessity of faith to endure and ultimately escape God's ultimate judgment. 
You know, a lot of times I think when we're thinking of God's judgment, we think of something that's kind of out there. It's, it's something that's in the future. It's something that's coming. We don't recognize it as something that's actually happening now. But as we look at this passage, what we see is that, that God is actually always judging sin. From the time sin entered into the world, God began to judge sin. I mean, you think back, you go back to the garden, Adam and Eve are in the garden, right? What do they do? They sin against God. So what? God separates them from himself, right? That was an act of judgment. God also slaughtered an animal in order to cover their sins and provide them clothing. That was also an act of judgment. That was showing that sin required sacrifice. Sorry. Later on, as, as the world is changing and, and people are falling into sin, God announces a judgment on the earth, right? And he floods the earth and he, he destroys all of humanity except for Noah and his family. A little bit like Egypt, right? Ten plagues, God judges Egypt, delivers Israel out of that. Right? We just think it's all about God's deliverance, but there is a, a very real aspect of God's judgment in there. Think about the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and, I mean, Sodom was judged by God. God saved. It's a great picture of salvation as God saves Lot, right? Tries to save his family. But God's judgment is evident throughout Scripture. God's judgment is evident in the, in the establishing of the tabernacle and the sacrificial system. It says, this says, God says sin needs to be judged. And so the sacrificial system is put into place because of God's judgment. When, when Israel inherits the promised land, when they come into the promised land, what happens to all the people? God judges them, right? He actually, he tells Israel that he's, that he's basically, he's kicking the inhabitants out because of their sin. He says, they're wicked. I'm going to give you their land because of what they've done. It's not because you're righteous or good, but because I've chosen you. And, and so that's God's judgment. And then what does God do to Israel later on? God judges them and kicks them out of the land. I mean, all throughout Scripture, we see God judging sin. Because God is holy. He must judge sin. That is the full, revealed in the fullness of His character. God sent Jesus Christ into this world in order that He might judge sin. The ultimate consequence of sin, death, was defeated by Christ Jesus as God's wrath was poured out on him for the sins of humanity. And so for everyone who believes, for everyone who entrusts themselves to Christ, there is no longer any judgment from an eternal perspective. There is no longer any judgment for sin. But God does not remove temporal consequences for sin. God has not removed His discipline against His children. God has not removed the curse of sin over on, that's on all of creation. At least not yet. He says that He will, but right now there is a time of judgment. The, the, the word that's ju judgment that's used in this text, when He says there in verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, He's talking about about not necessarily, uh, not necessarily punishment, that, that's only part of God's judgment. He's talking about a declaration of, a, a declaration of truth. He's talking about a, a uh, coming, making a ruling concerning all things. 
It's the idea of when, when, a, when a judge gives a sentence at the end of a hearing, that a, a conclusion has come, and that this, these declarations are being made. And so, while punishment is part of that, it's, it's only part of that. And so, so when it talks about God's judgment, it's not only punishment, but it is this idea of God coming to a conclusion that He is, he is making a ruling concerning the world, concerning sin, concerning people, concerning His people, the church in particular, as we look at this in verse 17. As we've been looking at, at, at Peter's writing to the church, he's been writing to a people that are, that are enduring, increasing suffering because of their faith, and, and Peter's trying to encourage them. And, and what, but what he's highlighting for them and for us at this point is that what we need to understand, when we're trying to understand suffering and we're trying to endure suffering, that ultimately all suffering in some way is related to sin. Okay? Now let me, let me clarify that for you. It's not that, that all suffering is because of personal sin. There is some suffering that is the result of personal sin, but all suffering is the result of the curse of sin. When, when, when sin entered into the world and God announced a curse on the world, things began to happen that didn't happen previous to sin being in the world. Sicknesses came, right? Illnesses arose as far as people are concerned. The earth actually produced things it didn't produce before. Thorns and thistles and, and you know, those kind of things that you don't like to deal with, right? Those things began to come into the world. The, the earth fell under God's judgment. And so... Well, as believers, we may suffer from time to time if we fall into sin. God's discipline is on us, and we may suffer for that. But we also know that we don't always suffer for doing what's wrong, but also for doing what's right. So what is that? Well, that's other people's sin affecting us, right? And so sin is contained and is responsible ultimately for suffering. And God is continually bringing in revealing his displeasure with sin by bringing judgment against it. Listen to what Romans 1.18 says. It reminds us that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. You see, God is continually judging in part that which he finds offensive. Okay? So, I know this is, you were like, well, I thought, you know, all sin... Was poured, you know, all the wrath of God was poured out on, on, on Christ Jesus? Yes and no. Okay? There, there is, there, for everyone who believes, ult, the ultimate consequences of sin are done away with. There is no longer any death. There is only eternal life in Christ Jesus. But God has allowed the earth to continue for a time in its present state, which is still under the curse of sin until its final redemption, which is going to be accomplished by Christ Jesus. Okay? So, so don't, don't we're, I'm not trying to get you into despair here, okay? Don't, don't think that somehow there's some insufficiency in what Christ has done. That is not the case. Not at all. But the reality is, is that we must understand that God cannot, although He allows sin to continue on for a time, He continues to reveal His righteousness against it in the things that we endure in this life as we see suffering and we see judgment. Peter speaks of God's judgment in light 
of the suffering of the Christian community here so that we can understand that judgment and the righteousness of God. And there's three truths concerning that that I want to share with you this this morning concerning judgment. First, the purpose of purification. Also, I want you to see the means of motivation. And then finally, the direction of devotion. The purpose of purification. This is This is what we see in verse 17. It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. Now, I said earlier, we we think of judgment as something that's far off and not always something that's going on right now. But if it's the time for judgment to begin with the household of God, that's not something that's far off. That's something that's happening right now. That that word time is not an an issue of chronology. It actually means a season. It is a period of time in which God is judging his people that is he is working to purify them through suffering we are engaged in a time of God's judging his people so that his holiness and purposes are continually revealed and that season of judgment will ultimately come to an end when we face the Lord at Christ's return. This season of judgment culminates at the final judgment. And this is a judgment against, notice this, this is a judgment on the household of God. Now we don't always like to think, we don't like to think about God judging us as believers. We always think about God judging unbelievers, God judging the unrighteous, God judging people who have done a whole bunch of things wrong. But God says, listen, I, I, need, to, I need to purify my people first. My people need to understand that I am holy, and I desire for them to be holy. And so God is continually at work to remove sin from our lives through a process of purification. So when he talks about judgment on the household of God, this is what he's referring to. This, and this is the way, listen, this isn't something new either. This is how God has always worked. God has always sought to reveal His holiness that people would know that He is a holy God and that He requires holiness for those that would follow Him. Back in the days of Ezekiel, Ezekiel brought a a declaration of God's judgment against Israel. He told them that they were coming under God's judgment. In Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 5 and 6, this is God's command. And and I believe this is what Peter is referring to in our passage this morning. He says, To the others, he said in my hearing, Go through the city after him and strike. And do not let your eye have pity. And do not spare. Utterly slay old men, young men, maidens, little children, and women. But do not touch any man on whom is the mark. And you shall start from my sanctuary. So they started with the elders who were before the temple. You see, there was sin among God's people. And God says, listen, I'm going to purify my people. And I'm going to begin with those who are closest to my holy presence. That's why he begins at the temple. Well, in the New Testament, guess what? The temple's not a place anymore. The temple is a people. We are God's temple. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit as believers. And so God's judgment, that is His declarations, His his uh, sentencing, his, his discipline, all of those things are directed toward us, not in order that he can, can bruise us and can beat us down, and, and makes it, but in order that we might grow in 
holiness, that we might grow to be more like Christ. Now, I mean, and there's a couple of different ways that that, that, that comes about. We talk about the discipline of God. When, when we fall into sin, right, God disciplines us. He, he teaches us through our, uh, through our mistakes and through our failings. He, he disciplines us in order that we might learn to be holy. Hebrews 12, 7 and 8 says, It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. You know, how many people just rejoice when their children fall into sin and just are uncontrollable and they just let them do whatever they want? I mean, as parents, we understand there's the necessity of disciplining our children in order that we might teach them right from wrong. And when they do wrong, there are consequences in which we use to direct them into doing what is right. Right? So why should we expect any less from God? God, this is what God does with His children. God says, listen, I, there's a way I want you to walk. There's, there's a path that I want you to lead. There's, there's an expectation I have for your behavior, and I want you to do this. And so when you don't do it, there's going to be consequences, and I'm going to direct you into the way that I would have you walk. So God disciplines us. Well, as, we're, as we've been studying this passage in 1 Peter, Peter has not been dealing with discipline for wrongdoing. In fact, the, the bulk of this passage and, and really the bulk of 1 Peter as he deals with suffering is really for suffering unjustly. That is for suffering for doing right rather than, what's do, than doing wrong. So what, what is that? How does that work and how does that fall under God's judgment? We don't typically think of discipline in the sense of, of suffering for doing what's right, right? I mean, that, we don't consider that discipline or not in a normal sense anyway. But it is, it does, you know what that word discipline has? The same root word for discipline is that word disciple, right? You realize that? Discipline and discipling, there's, you know, there's only really a, a letter difference at the end. You want to, you change the E to a G and you go from discipline to discipling, right? Well, God's discipling us and he's, he's teaching us. And when we suffer, God is using that. He uses it just as he uses discipline. He uses that to teach us. Do you know, and just think about this for a minute. It is through our suffering that we learn dependence on God. I mean, without suffering, we just think we've got it all together. Without suffering, we think we've got the answers. We can do things our way and things will just, just be fine. But when suffering comes into our life, we begin to learn humility. We begin to recognize we don't have all the answers. We begin to see that, you know what, maybe I need more than just myself to get through this. Maybe my ideas aren't the best. And we begin to look to God and we begin to learn dependence on God. See, God is to disciple us, to teach us to pray. How many times has suffering brought you to your knees and, and taught you how to truly pray? God, how to pour out your heart and to, to share your burdens with Him. We're growing in our faith. We're growing in our understanding because of the suffering that's going on around us. God is using His judgment against sin and in our circumstances, His judgment, His declarations 
listen to this. this it's, I told you judgment's not just punishment, right? It's a declaration of truth. What has God declared about us as his children? He's declared that we are holy in Christ. So guess what? He wants that holiness to be worked out in a practical way. And so he, so he works in us through those difficulties and through that suffering in order that we might represent that reality of which he's already declared to be true. He says, you are holy, now I'm going to help you act like it. He says, you are righteous, now I'm going to lead you towards righteousness. He says, you are perfect in Christ, so I'm going to lead you toward perfection. So we're given this reminder that judgment begins with us as God's children because he's constantly seeking to purify us that we might be better representatives of his holy majesty. That's his purpose for us. He wants to purify us to be his representatives in order that we might share his glory with others. And then Peter immediately moves in to that means of motivation, into that, into that direction for us to help us understand, listen, if, if, if we're suffering because of the sin that's in the world and the things that are going on around us and God is using it to disciple us and, and, to, and to grow us and to strengthen us, what's going to happen to those who don't know God? What's going to happen to those who don't obey the gospel? I mean, if we're enduring all this as God's children, what hope does the world have? And so Peter's using this is to remind us that we have been given a purpose, not only of being pure and holy and representing Christ, but to use that to motivate us to evangelize the lost. We have been given the responsibility of recognizing the lost people in our communities and in those people that God brings into our life in order that, that we might share with them the hope of Christ. Peter is trying to arouse that concern for the lost among, among the people. He wants them to understand that Christ is the only way, and without Him, there is no hope of salvation. You see, people, all people undergo suffering. God's people, lost people, they're all undergoing suffering. The, the biggest difference is, is that those who suffer apart from Christ suffer with no hope. Peter says here in verse, in the end of verse 17 and into verse 18, he says, if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? What's going to happen to them? Let me give you this picture from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6-9. through 9. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with afflictions those who afflict you. And to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels, in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. You see, Paul uses that same wording that Peter used about those who do not obey the gospel. But Paul goes into a little more of a description about what actually happens. Peter just kind of asks the question rhetorically. 
He understands the people know. When you ask what's going to happen to those who don't obey the gospel, they understand judgment. They understand judgment not just in a temporal sense and not, and not just in, in an immediate sense, but in an ultimate sense. That's what's going to happen. As they suffer, as they pay the penalty of, of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Every person on this earth has an eternal destination. You're either going to heaven or you're going to hell. There's no in-between and there's no other option. The reality of what Peter is telling us in, the, in these verses, the reality of what he's saying here should really, should really begin to grip your heart. Peter is trying to help us to understand. Listen, we think we're basically good people. I mean, we're Christians. We go to church. We're trying to serve the Lord. We give our tithes, and, and you know, we're basically good people. But what, what does Peter say about us as good people? Look at verse 18. He says, if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? The, the King James says that you're scarcely saved. You know why? Because our righteousness is not our own. It's, it's not our obedience that gets us in. Now, Peter's drawing a contrast between those who obey the gospel and those who do not obey the gospel, not to say that obedience is what saves us, but it's the reality of salvation that produces obedience so that those who do not obey the gospel have never been saved. And so he says, so if you're, if you're righteous and you're going to heaven, understand it's not because of what you've done because you're just barely getting in yourself. It's only by the grace of God that you can get in. It's only because God took pity on you and revealed to you the glories of Christ and what He's done and so that His grace could be poured out on you so that you could be accepted in Him. So if there's no, if, if that's what it takes for you to get in, what hope has someone who doesn't know Christ? There's no hope for them. That's why we've got to take the gospel to them. That's why we've got to represent what Christ did and who he is and, and teach them of, of the reality of sin and what it does and how it brings separation. And we need, they need to understand that if they don't repent of their sins and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that they will suffer eternally for what they've done. Christ is our only hope. And that's what Peter's trying to get them to see. He says, listen, I know you're suffering, and I know you're hurting, but listen, it's only temporary. God's purifying you through your suffering right now, but for those that are out in the world that don't know Christ, their suffering is only going to increase. The suffering that they're enduring now, guess what? It's the best it's ever going to be for them. We have a responsibility, and Peter is seeking to motivate us to carry the gospel to the lost. The issue is not obedience other than in the sense of obedience is, the, is a sign of salvation. It is the manifestation of salvation. 
and that those who do not obey the gospel. You ever thought about what it means to obey the gospel? I mean, we, know, we understand that the gospel in a sense, right, it's, it's all of God's word that God's using to reveal himself to reconcile people to himself. That's, you know, in a very broad sense, that's the gospel. But more specifically, we understand that the gospel is the good news that God sent his only son into the world, right, to suffer and, and to take on the, uh, the, the mantle, if you will, of, of sin, to become sin for us, right? He never sinned. He was the perfect sinless sacrifice. And, and he died so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So what is there to obey in that? To believe, right? It, it's responding to the gospel. That, that's, that's the basics of obedience to the gospel, repentance and faith. That's the basics. But then it's also a life that is sanctified by the word of truth. It's a life that seeks to obey God in, in all that he's guided us towards that we might grow in holiness and in truth. But obedience isn't what saves us. It's just the manifestation of our salvation. Titus 3, verses 5 and 6 says this. He says, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. See, no amount of obedience is going to get us into heaven. But if you've been saved, you're going to be growing in obedience. The only means by which God's wrath against sin is satisfied is in the person of Jesus Christ. He is our only hope. Our hope for endurance and the suffering of this world and our hope for escape from eternal suffering. Which leads us to the final point, the direction to devotion, verse 19. He says, Therefore those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Even in there, you see this, this idea of obedience coming, coming about as he says, you know, it begins with faith in order that we might carry out and do what's right, right? We entrust ourselves to Christ. It is, is a call to commitment, a surrendered devotion to the Lord. Since suffering, since we understand that suffering is a part of God's will and plan to purify us and to motivate us to share with others the only hope of salvation through Jesus Christ with others, then we need... And Peter's saying, listen, you need to continue to surrender yourselves to the perfect will of God and to pursue what is right in his sight. This declaration of suffering according to the will of God, it's really just a summary of one of the major themes of this letter as Peter's been writing. I mean, this is like the fourth time he's, he's talked about suffering. This is the fourth time he's come to us and said, he said, listen, you're, you're going to suffer, but you know what, if you're a follower of Christ... All of your suffering is in his plan. He, he, he's got it. He's walking with you through it. He's growing you through it. He's not abandoned you. He will never abandon you. But he's going to be with you and he's going to strengthen you. We just need to maintain that perspective. It is a proper perspective that builds our faith as we continually entrust ourselves to the Lord. That word entrust there in verse 19, it, it carries the idea of Putting ourselves in God's hands. That's, that's literally what, what it means. If you, if, you, if you look it up in the Greek, it means, it means to put into or to place beside. 
It's, it's a commitment of ourselves to God's perfect plan. And Paul said, and P, sorry, Peter says here, he says, they shall entrust their souls, the whole of their being, right? The whole of their being to a faithful creator. And I love that. It doesn't just say they entrust their souls to God. They entrust their souls to Jesus. Yes, that's true, but they're, we're entrusting ourselves to a faithful creator. You know what it means for God to be faithful? It means he always does what's right. He always does what's right. He always works in accordance with his perfect will. He always provides in accordance with the promises of his word. You know, my my favorite promises in all of God's word comes out of Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And, And in essence, it says, We know that God works all things together for good to those that love him. God is always working for our good. It may not always feel like our good in the moment, but ultimately, God is always working for our good. And and here's the reality, and, and a lot of you have experienced this. You know this. You don't see it in the moment when you're suffering and when you're hurting. You're like, God, I don't know what you're doing. I don't understand what's going on. And then a couple years down the road, you look back and you're like, oh, I get it now. You know, when, when, when God saved me at, at the age of 21 in, in college, you know, just a, a college kid who, for the first time, had my eyes open to the reality of the gospel. Not that I hadn't heard it before, but I, my eyes hadn't been opened yet. And God said, I had no idea that someday, nine years down the road, that God was going to call me to preach the gospel. And when he called me, I had no idea that when God led us to Memphis to go to seminary, that, that, that we would in, in go through what our family endured. We were in Memphis just, just a couple months. My uh, oldest son's diagnosed with a brain tumor. And God's going, you know what? I brought you to Memphis for a reason. And St. Jude Children's Hospital's right there. And it's like, oh, you know, I had no idea. But God did. And, and, and through that, I had no idea when we got that diagnosis and when we went through treatment and we were dealing with that, I had no idea how God would use that as a door of ministry or open for a door of ministry and a door to share the gospel with people who I never would have had the opportunity to speak with otherwise. Families I would have never had the experience or the understanding to be able to come alongside them and to be able to encourage them. Families that encouraged us. and I, I couldn't see all that, but God could. I could have never known that, that through all that God was, was doing and, and, and or know the purposes that God intended, but through trials and tribulations and opportunities, God continued to work out His perfect plan for my good. Just as He is always working through your suffering and through your trials and through your tribulations for your ultimate good. God is faithful to his promises. And I love it here. Peter doesn't just talk about God's faithfulness. He, says, he talks about him as a faithful creator. You know, you know what it means for God to be creator? That means he's in charge. It means he's the boss. It means he's sovereign. It means he's in control. What, what, are, what are we? We're clay, Right? God's the potter, we're the clay, and he's continuing to mold us into what he wants us to become. Listen to this picture from Isaiah 64.8. He tells us, but now, O Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, and you are potter, and all of us are the work 
of your hands. I just want you to see this morning, you can trust God. He is faithful. He created you for a purpose. He's working in your circumstances to encourage you and to strengthen you and to make you into something useful for His glory. That's His desire. That's His plan. And we can trust Him to do that. And as as we take all of this in and as we're looking at at each of these things, I think the, the greatest application really comes from us kind of working backwards through the text. Because the last thing is telling us us to entrust ourselves to God, right? But really, that's the beginning. The the beginning is entrusting ourselves to God. That's where we start. By by trusting in Jesus Christ, we gain, first of all, we gain a relationship with God. And and, and our eternity becomes secure. And we're able, for the first time, to be able to have hope in our difficulties. And this, is, this trust is not a, a one-time commitment or profession. It's the beginning of a relationship that is fostered and strengthened through the trials of life. So it begins with trust as we start a relationship, and it continues with entrusting ourselves as we grow in that relationship. And then, and then what? Well, then God is using us, right? I mean, He's using us as vessels of mercy as we plead with others to respond to the gospel as as we recognize what god has saved us from and how we've just barely escaped and how others around us are what they're facing if they don't repent and believe and so god wants to use us for evangelism he wants to to motivate us for that and all the as we serve Christ and as we're doing we start with faith we, be, we begin to be obedient and we recognize that God is, is bringing us to a, to a place of completion we're not going to see it in this life but ultimately one day we're going to see Christ face to face and he's going to complete and confirm and establish and we will be perfected in a sense now we're always going to listen we're never going to be completely perfect because we're always going to be growing in knowledge and understanding of god because god's god is in in infathomable and and a infinite being that we'll never fully know but our understanding and our knowledge and our physical presence will all be perfected when we come to him and that's what God's doing with us. And that's what he wants to do with us. And we just, we get so distracted by the things of this world. And, we, and when difficulty comes in, a lot of times we're, our focus really gets away from where it needs to be. When suffering comes into our life, we're not thinking, oh, well, I understand that suffering's happening because God is holy and he's revealing his holiness against the sin of the world. I mean, we just don't, we don't stop and think about that, but maybe we should. Maybe we should stop and understand that when suffering comes into our life, it's a manifestation of the reality that God is holy. That God does desire to deal with sin. And that God is working in us and through us to glorify His holy name. But the only way we ever get there 
is by continually entrusting ourselves to a faithful creator. Let us pray together. Father, thank you for looking down on us and for seeing our weakness, for recognizing our hopelessness, and for giving us hope. Lord, there's no other way which we could overcome the horrible consequences of sin. But when we entrust ourselves to you, through your Son, Jesus Christ, Lord, you are able to change our perspective, to help us to understand that whatever suffering, whatever difficulty, whatever hardship that we're facing, that you're using that for our good. That you're purifying us and sanctifying us and strengthening us. And you're doing it all so that we might be more effective witnesses for you. Father, help us not to take anything for granted. But as our hearts are torn, turned this morning in this season that we're in, as we look to the manger, Father, let us always understand that behind the manger was a cross. And let us understand the seriousness of sin. And help us, Lord, to forsake it in your presence, to seek your forgiveness. and to surrender to your perfect will. Give us the strength to overcome. Give us the boldness to witness to those around us. And give us the courage to stand firm for the truth of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.